In the words of Mark Twain, After all these years, I see that I was mistaken about Eve in the beginning. It is better to live outside the garden with her than inside without her. This is no Eden. But at least we're together. Hello, listeners. Welcome to uh, This Is No Eden. You might be uh, a bit caught uh, caught off guard with the intro. This Is No Eden is a segment that my wife Amy and I created um, under Immaterial Treasures. We um, we initially wanted to, you know, talk about relational aspects, um, marriage, just different things that people encounter within marriage and relationship. And we haven't been consistent at all. We only have one previous uh, recording. So today we're going to be talking about race and interracial marriage, a very important topic of our day, uh, especially with regards to everything that's happening. We look at each other and we think about us as a couple, um, just the dynamics of our marriage and our future. If God so wills to give us children, like what would, how, how are we going to navigate the future or approach the future? So just to give some preparatory uh, information, Interracial marriage was outlawed in the following countries, in the USA, in Nazi Germany, and in apartheid South Africa. In the United States, it became legal on June 12, 1967, and that was the Loving vs. Virginia Act. And it was sanctioned that it was, it was deemed legal to marry um, outside of your race. There's a whole movie on that, too, if you're interested in watching that. Apparently, though, 14 states uh, still didn't respect that uh, law. They change. didn't acknowledge it. They didn't acknowledge it, and they were still continuing to outlaw um, interracial marriage even after that. In our country, where we live, in Canada, it wasn't outlawed. But according to Constance Backhouse, a historian, she says in the 1930s, the Canadian branch of the KKK actively prevented people from marrying outside of the race. So there was more of like a fear and terrorizing of people who would try and go that route. Another interesting fact was... Uh, Davis Knight was arrested under the Mississippi miscegenation laws in 1948 uh, since he was possibly one-eighth black. Therefore, he couldn't marry his uh, longtime sweetheart. And there's also a segment of that that's highlighted in the Netflix movie called uh, The Free State of Jones. And you watch it, and the guy that's in the movie actually looks white, but he's one-eighth black, and he's in court trying to defend his right to marry his white um, sweetheart. It just goes to show just the history of racism and um, how having one, just a drop, this was his, his historical fact, having a drop of black in you made you black. I remember when I was a kid, I think I was about 14 years old. We were in the U.S. in Virginia, I believe, West Virginia, West Virginia. <laughs> West Virginia. I can't remember if it was Virginia or West Virginia, but anyway, and we were at a family's home uh, it was one of the churches that we were my parents were ministering at and i remember there was a conversation at the table about interracial marriage and how that it's not biblical and um i remember thinking at that age i was pretty young and i was thinking what this is wrong um i remember it really upset me and i was just i really disagreed with them and i was just a kid at the time i think they also uh wanted to take us to the Confederate mountain. And I was, I don't think I even understood the history because I was a kid and we're from Canada, but maybe Jen, Jen informed me or something, but I was like on a little mini protest. I Jen is her go. sister, by the way. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was on this like mini attitude protest. I didn't want to go to this mountain. Um, and I was just like 14 years old. I remember that. So Amy was a rebel early on. <laughs> And it, that that's even funny because years ago, before I met Amy, I have to preface that it wasn't recent. There was a girl that was interested in me, um, and she stopped talking to me because she said her dad said it was uh, unbiblical that interracial marriage is not sanctioned by the Bible. And I mean, I'm not hurt by that at all, but I just thought it was erroneous. And the passages he used to try to prove it was just fast and loose, and it was that's a whole nother episode, but. It's, it's interesting because if you look at some of these, if you see somebody that's mixed and they're past the age of 40, then you have to give credit to their parents because their parents probably overcame such huge 
stigmas and such huge, huge um, forms of hate. Um, credit to their parents. It's it's incredible that people would still. I mean, you can't stop someone from loving, from falling in love with someone that's outside of their race. If they love them, you can't stop that. But some people were so shaped by our culture that sometimes we make decisions not to go against the grain because it's just safer. It's safer. It gives you a peace of mind, right? So I commend couples that have been married for the years or even were married in those times where it was illegal or frowned upon. And that could be a means of being ostracized, ostracized, right? So as we go into a conversation, we're going to talk about the early years of our marriage. Uh, we'll be married six years um, in October, October 11th, to be exact. And we're going to talk about our first date uh, and just different aspects of like the early years and navigating the race issue. Um, so Amy, what do you... Yeah, so I remember our first official date was with uh, friends of ours, Matt and Sune. And uh, we had a really nice time. We went for dinner and then we decided to go watch a movie. And for whatever reason, we ended up watching the movie The Butler. <laughs> and remember, it just was so awkward being a first date in this highly racial tension topic displayed before us. I remember feeling a bit squeamish. Yeah. And I mean, you weren't the only one with the discomfort. I think I felt um, a massive amount of discomfort because everybody... Well, Matt and Sunay are white and you are white. And I was just like, uh, it just reaffirmed the fact that black people are the handmaidens of America because the butler kind of portrayed that. Um, and it was just an uncomfortable feeling uh, because I, I just didn't feel represented in a powerful way or in a in a way that's redemptive. And and yeah, so it, it was awkward, <laughs> but I think we got we got over it. It, was, it wasn't something we talked about in the moment. We were still getting to know each other, so it would have been awkward mm, to even bring that up. Premature. Yeah, very premature. And uh, so in the beginning, when we first got married, there was situations in which when Amy and I would get into arguments or fights uh, and my parents would find out about it or, you know, we'd express it to my sisters or go to my parents, my parents would always have this talk with me it's almost the same talk that black parents have with their kids when they go outside of the house or uh, on how to deal with police officers. You know, if the police officer, you know, ask you a question, put your hands down, show them you have nothing. It's that kind of talk. But this talk was different because my parents um, would always tell me, be careful, be, be good to her because, you know, she has the power to ruin your life if she wanted to. And if you guys got into a, a, a big misunderstanding and the cops are called, you will lose be careful. Um, and it was like almost like striking fear in me. It's like, it almost made me feel like I should fear Amy. And I did, I, those, that feeling was yucky to me because I was like, I, I don't really care that she's white. And, but I know that my parents came by those fears, honestly, because they, um, they've seen it. They've seen in society where white women have used their words to destroy black men. I know for a fact that my decision to want to marry Amy was beyond her good looks. <laughs> um, I felt safe with her and we, we agreed on very deep things that I cared about. Uh, and that was the means for which we began to date and understand each other. And I felt confident enough to ask her to be my wife. Yeah. I'm happy you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we have a lot in common, even though we don't uh, share skin color. Our parents raised us in very similar ways. But yeah, I remember um, when we would also get into arguments. Remember our first apartment. And uh, it was sometimes summertime. We'd be outside and on the front lawn or whatnot. And we would just, we'd be arguing. Maybe the vo my volume would be louder than it normally is which is probably the only time it ever is raised is, <laughs> is an argument it's, it's a bizarre because amy's dancing. very uh she's very soft-spoken her <laughs> voice never goes up uh, and damphy would be all like paranoid because he would think like the neighbors are gonna see you know like a black man arguing with a white woman or whatnot and you know they maybe they would call the police or be intimidated. So he was always like trying to hush me or say, Oh, we can't argue in front of people because 
They're going to perceive us as, as like a threat. Yeah. Well, they're going to perceive me as uh, perhaps being combative or that your life might be a threat because I'm angry with you. Um, and I think part of it also is that Amy, but you never raised your voice in those contexts. I don't when I get actually, when I get really angry, I get more quiet, <laughs> but, um, it was more so too, that Amy used to be silly and try to wrestle me when we were angry, when she was angry and come at me and I would try to push her off of me and stuff. And she'd do that outside in front of the house. And I was like, babe, you can't do this because if I, if somebody sees me pushing you off of me, they're going to think it's a domestic situation. So I, I'd always tell her, like, you can't do that. Like, let's not do that outside. Like, if you can do this inside because no one's going to see us and we're in the safety of our own home. But yeah, I was always conscious of that. And I think you we never... We don't even argue like that anymore. Yeah, I think you never really thought of it because you just... This was a normal situation for you. You're just like, I'm fighting with my husband. Where I'm like, well, the world doesn't see it like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, the world doesn't see it like that. And it was, it was quite just, you know... Yeah, and I learned a lot about even it's how to mitigate your uh, yeah anger. We, we don't we don't interact that way anymore. I think it's because I come from a big family and I have three brothers and uh, yeah, it was just we had a different way of dealing with things at times. So yeah, you but would I've, wrestle your brothers. Yeah, we were just we we're more of like a physical family. We like very affectionate, and but yeah, I've grown. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about. Um, some of the conversations we had throughout our marriage about race and some of your discomforts. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, early on when Danfi would get very passionate about the topic of racial injustice or something would happen in the news and there would be a lot of uh, kind of stir in the media or even in conversations with others. Or even just watching movies from of yeah, like history displayed. Even, yeah, movies. I think 12 Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. That was hard to um, watch. Yeah, very, very difficult. Of course, Danfi would be going through a wide range of emotions at that time that would be different than mine. I could obviously grieve, but not in the same way. And uh, I know that there was a time I can look back and see that I just felt uncomfortable and maybe I didn't know how to name it. I didn't know how to even articulate what I was feeling. I think it's like, it's just a discomfort that you feel because you're the white person. You're the perceived like um, perpetrator. And even though it's not you, it's this overarching message. And I think it can make you feel like just not knowing how you fit into that. And you also don't want to be perceived as the enemy. You want to be like, I'm on your team. I'm on your side. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's all this like anger and emotion being expressed against white people or even just what white people have done. And yeah, I think it can leave you feeling very uncomfortable, but I've learned over the years that um, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to feel to not feel comfortable in that setting and that you just need to sit with that feeling and let the person express themselves, let them grieve, let them express their anger, whatever it might be. And just let them be heard and not try to change the subject, not try to deflect. And one example of this is, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting or a home group where Somebody's being vulnerable and then all of a sudden somebody changes the subject because they're uncomfortable or they tell a joke. And I've seen this happen so many times, even from leaders that are trying to facilitate more of a surface level conversation. They will redirect the conversation from someone's very intense vulnerable moment Mm -hmm. or grief and just totally sideswipe it with something very surface level. And I feel like that's what... A lot of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, but as a white person, I feel like that's what I've done in the past because of my own discomfort. Or even like they say, uh, what is the one phrase about? It's either either the, the three responses, you cry, you get angry, or you run away. And I think I've, uh, I don't know if I've gotten angry, but I've definitely probably felt emotional and just wanted to get away from the conversation just because of the the discomfort. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing a lot of that going on right now. 
Um, at least I can relate to it. When I see it, I, I think, yeah, I know what that is because I've felt it. And I've had some time though, you know, we're going on six years here and I've had some time to work through that and not saying I've arrived by any means, but I definitely, I can recognize it and acknowledge what it is at least. And you know what? The funny thing is like the illustration you just provided of like that leader redirecting the conversation because they're uncomfortable or they're afraid of the uncomfortability of the greater group. I feel as though sometimes when we had, we've had these conversations in the past and you get uncomfortable, it makes me feel as though you don't care. Do you know, mm-hmm. and I, and it, that could be perceived for somebody in a group like that. If they're being sure. vulnerable and the leader just redirects, it's like, okay, well, you just completely disregarded my real raw emotions. And because it's like we want people to share, but we want them to share in a way that makes us comfortable. It's like, right. Oh, yeah, please, please share. Please be open. Please be honest. But here's like the boundaries. Right, right. And right. as soon as the emotion gets beyond like, you know, a certain level, it's like, whoa, we got to bring that down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here's the parameters um, for which you can express yourself. And if it, yeah, exceeds that, then we're going to do whatever we can to mitigate that. And you know what? I feel like you've gotten better, like a lot better, because now you don't tell me not to be angry or not to respond a certain way. I think what you do is you kind of let me vent and then you take that and you kind of internalize. I mean, you did this the other day, you internalize it and then you come back to me and name and help me name those emotions. And you kind of like legitimize it for me. You're like, actually, I see where you're coming from. I see why you would feel this way. And that's incredibly helpful. Uh, I don't know if you know that I'm telling you now, (laughs) I really benefited from that because then it makes me feel like I'm not crazy Mm-hmm. because that's the feeling you get is like, am I crazy to feel this way? Yeah. I think we really need to do a lot more listening and less deflecting and defending because I just think that it's important for us to, and, and yeah, maybe we're not comfortable with the ways in it's being in the way it's being expressed. There is anger out there right now. There is hurt. There's pain, but yeah, it's not our it's not our responsibility or our job to yeah, just to to tamper how people feel or to tell them how to feel. Right. Or even require them to be godly or like using like spiritual principles to try to like in a backhanded way tell people not to emote, you know? Because if we read the Bible, I mean, there's all kinds of emotion shown in the Bible and David he showed a lot of emotion. You know, a lot of the Psalms are full of a wide range of emotions. And there's a, there's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that we have to have a certain level of emotion. But it does tell us not to sin in our emotion. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if someone does sin in their emotion, that's between them and God. And we don't need to be the one standing there with, you know, with our rocks ready to just stone them. Because or even police them, you know. Yeah, because that's, and I'm, and there's a lot of times I've sinned in my emotions. That's, you know, between me and God. And yeah, and we even look at Jesus and there was a lot of times that he showed anger. He showed grief. He wept. He wept with those who wept. So I think we need to uh, maybe take off that, you know, everything is theological and we just think through everything and it has to fit neatly in our little um, theological box. Mm Mm-hmm. And sit with people, grieve with people, see why they're suffering and how we can be a comfort to them. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the um, the dynamics of um, being an interracial couple in the world and at home. Like, what are some of the things that you felt when we're in public? I think definitely when we first started dating and um, we're getting married, you know, that the family finding out and everything, I did have... I did have fears and and not for myself, but more for you was like, oh no, I hope I don't have like some extended racist family members, you know, that are going to say things behind our back. You know, I knew people weren't going to say anything to my face. Like your family that is. Yeah. Right. But there's just that like, you just live with that little, it's like that little feeling. Like, like, you don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like when I'm not there. What do people say, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't, I'm not speaking about my immediate family, but I just, you just wonder. And I'm, I definitely went through that. And, you know, you have to get to a place where you just don't care, 
but I think it does require like it, it requires a conscious effort to separate yourself from those things and just move forward Mm -hmm. and even repent. Like there's always a place to continuously repent for even living under those fears. Right. Right. I think for me, like the initial in the beginning, just little things. So if we were driving in the car um, and I do a lot of driving for work, as you know, um, I didn't, I was never comfortable with Amy driving because I didn't want to reaffirm stereotypes that most people have about black men, that they milk off white women. Um, and, and so when you would drive, if I was tired from driving, I was always uncomfortable because I was like, what's the outside world looking in and looking at us? What are they thinking? Oh, this, oh, it's another white girl who's taking care of a black guy, you know, that's just milking her, uh, milking off of her. And I was so uncomfortable. Mm. I don't, and I think it's getting better, but I still live under that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm always driving. I mean, another reason why I always drive is because I don't like Amy's driving. (laughs) Yeah, I'm too slow. (laughs) She does everything but drive. Um, I'm just slow. uh, But yeah, that was one thing that was hard for me. I'm not going to lie. And then another thing was like when we went out to eat, Mm -hmm. you know, um, we're married all our money comes out of the same account, but people don't know that. So sometimes I usually don't carry my wallet around. I, I leave it in the car constantly. Uh, don't rob me. <laughs> yeah. I always leave my wallet in the car. And so I don't have it on me. So if we go out to eat, most of the time, Amy has her wallet on her. So she pays. But even that is awkward because then I, I look and I'm like, okay, are people thinking, look at this, look at this guy, you know, he's just sitting back and he's, you know, milking off this white girl who's paying for his meal. And what do the servers think? What do people around, you know, if they're looking, if they see Amy paying, what do they think? Some of these things are just like within my conscience. I've wanted you to bring your wallet so that you're the one paying. Right. Because I don't want you to like, I don't want to feel that for you. Right. And you know what the crazy thing is like, if we were both the same race, it wouldn't be a problem. It would almost, somebody would almost celebrate that because like, oh, that's equality. Right. Mm -hmm. But when it becomes a black guy and a white girl and she's paying, it's like, okay, what else is she taking care of? You know? And no, it doesn't work like that in this marriage at all. <laughs> but yeah, that was hard. Then if he brings home the bacon. <laughs> that was hard. That was definitely <laughs> hard. Um, and I'm glad we we're both kind of learning from that, you know? And I feel like I'm getting more resilient when it comes to those things. I'm not allowing it to affect me as much. And I think you were even saying about how you take care of the house, like the pressures you feel because we have quite a bit of grass here, Mm -hmm. which is such a blessing. Um, And you were saying the other day just about how you feel like you can't let the grass like get beyond a certain point because, and I mean, you are, you're, you like these things anyways, just as a person, but there's that added pressure of, I have to keep things extra nice because you know, the neighbors know. Yeah. lives here and i don't want them to think oh that lazy black guy whatever. yeah yeah and my our neighbors are old like all the houses that surround us they're like in their they're like 60 plus older and some like 90 and so those I, white yeah they're all white oh well, there's one asian couple across the street they're nice but i know for a fact they are operating on prejudices so i do put that added pressure of like no nah, i'm not gonna give you any excuse to think that i'm a certain type of person yeah that's and we were just even talking about those things that you can live under and perhaps it's wrong for us to even, you know, maybe these are some of the things we need to fight against. Not that we change who we are, but you know, to not live under those kind of invisible messages. Right. Right. Because that's feeding into the stereotypes. This it's feeding into the, the lie really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, but it's, it's, it's a stronghold. It's hard to break free from. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, as one book that I read, the guy said, like, no, hum- no one person should be a representative for entire race. Mm. And I've been learning that um, even with white people. Right. Like, I, I can't make one white person's bad behavior be a, a representative of the entire race, nor should that be true with for black people. Um, but that's a tough terrain to uh, navigate, you know. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about um, some of like how your white privilege has benefited you in this marriage or how it's benefited me (laughs) um 
uh, kind of like the illustration that David Foster uh, Wallace gives in a commencement speech on YouTube called This Is Water. He says, there's an older fish who swims by two younger fish and he says to them, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim ahead and they think to themselves, they look at each other and they say, what the heck is water? Anyways, the reason why I bring this up is that the older fish is, uh, is the black community looking to the younger fish, the white community, and saying, morning, white people, how's your privilege? And white people are looking at each other and saying, what the heck is white privilege? And so these are, we, we've navigated these things in our marriage, you know, like Amy's white privilege coming out at certain times. Uh, and she'll, she'll share that. And we've created these, uh, these phrases to kind of like frame the conversation. So for me, this is beyond before I even got marriage in the communities I, 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 I lived in, walked in and people I hung out with, I've always had whiteness shield me from what could have been really disastrous. And Amy, and I was not the first black person Amy met, um, has had an experience where blackness brought her in. It was a welcoming type of dynamic. Um, so Amy, can you talk about a little bit of like, kind of like the white privileges you you encountered prior to us mar being married and afterwards? It's funny, like what you talk about the water, because I think for many people and even myself, I would say that you don't think about it because it's just, it is what it is until you're in a context in which you see the contrast. Right. And I think for many white people, even my mom said, I think today or was it yesterday? She's like her whole life. She was never even around any black people. Mm. Like it was like pretty much like now she is obviously more like in their church and, and whatnot. But, growing up in her early years, like absolutely no, like no interaction. Um, so you don't even think about this concept of white privilege because just everything is white and you're, you're in a white world. Um, my sister likes to remind me of, uh, something my grandfather used to say, which I don't, didn't even remember, but she has a great memory. Um, and he's passed on and he was a good man, but he was even, I, I don't even know if he were to be challenged on his views of racism and whatnot. I don't know what he would say, but he used to call black people darkies, which is horrible. <laughs> oh I didn't even know that until like, you know, then Jen reminded me, but, and my grandmother would say, black people have such lovely voices. I didn't, I don't think she had any stereotypes, but Hey, we I actually got know. to meet your grandma and she yes. was lovely. Never met your grandpa. I don't think he would have liked me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but... I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know what I think? I think that maybe at first those prejudices would be there, like just like kind of a wall. And then I think as he got to know you and as he realized that, wow, people are actually the same, maybe he would have become more, because he was a very friendly person. But anyway, it just just goes to show like, how this this stuff isn't even that old, you know? Like, this is my lifetime. Right. And um, I remember growing up, just the story I said earlier, we would go into the States, and I remember seeing, like, we go into some parts, some cities, and, like, everyone was black. I remember this one mall we went into, and, like, every single person was black, and I was just like, what? Like, I didn't even know that there could be such a thing, like, that level of segregation. Hmm. Um, one thing I remember from when I was like in my early twenties and I wasn't a Christian um, or backslidden, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I was definitely not ascribing to the uh, tenets of the faith, but I know friends of our friends of mine and I were, we were out one night drinking downtown Ottawa. It was summertime and I think I was the one that had the least amount to drink or I had the car. I don't even know, but I definitely had more to drink than I should have because I know that if I had to do a breathalyzer test, I would, I'm sure I would have uh, exceeded the limit. We had so many people in that car. I don't even know how many people we had in the car, but there was people just like layered in the back seat, and we got pulled over. I was driving and the police officer basically asked us a few questions, asked me a few questions. 
And instead of, you know, arresting me or giving me a breathalyzer test or anything, walk the line, nothing. Just said, park the car and walk. So obviously he knew that we were intoxicated and driving a vehicle. But he just, and I, you know, I like to attribute these things to my mother's prayers and my, (laughs) (laughs) but I also am not naive. I wonder if I was, you know, if I was black. I know I'm not, we're not in the South, but still these prejudices are still alive and well here in Canada. Yeah. I mean, come on, walk, just park the car and walk. No officer has ever told a black person that just park the car and walk. Yeah, we had to come Um, back and get it the next day. You know, obviously I learned a lesson. I was grateful, but yeah. Anyways, that's one example. Another time, uh, you and I were driving in the U.S. Yeah, and it's like Pennsylvania border of Maryland. Yeah, and we were driving our car, which was in kilometers, and obviously the U.S. is in miles, and I was speeding, and the I don't think I was speeding that much, but I was a little bit, and the cop, a cop pulled us over, and basically I just explained to him that I didn't know miles, my car was in kilometers, and kind of playing dumb, you know, like, well, maybe you can teach me something about how this works. (laughs) And yeah, he just let me off of the warning. I didn't get a ticket. So I'm pretty sure that if Danfi was driving, like 99% sure he would have gotten the ticket. Yeah. So those are just like two examples. I know that there's many more in my life. I'm sure if I really sat down and thought about it. When we were talking about being uh, shielded by whiteness and welcomed by blackness, there was this one evening that Danfi was at a soccer game and I took the car to go and do some errands. And by accident, we were at like, I was at a stoplight and I just put on the brakes, but I was too close to this other car. I think the car was turning left. Anyway, I bumped the bumper of this other car and it was like such a small nick on this guy's car. We pulled over obviously and proceed to have a conversation. But as soon as the guy got out of the car, it's like this Jamaican guy and his girlfriend. I was just like, my stomach sank because I thought, oh no, like, here I am, like, Danfi's not with me. He's going to think, yeah, and fitting if was, this profile, like, yeah. oh, this white, rich white girl. Like, oh, we're going to take her to the cleaners. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no. Like, cause they don't know me. They don't know. Like, they don't know you're married to a black guy. They just think Yeah, and probably, they don't know that I'm not rich. But yeah. the, the way it, it could look in that moment, they could feel and think that because of the stereotypes. And I just felt so helpless in that moment because I was like, wow, there's nothing I can do. And especially like, because like the girlfriend was there, I was like, she is not going to let me off. Not at all. And the guy was a little bit more like understanding. He was like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. And I just want to get it checked with my mechanic. And, and I felt like if Danfi was with me, it maybe perhaps would have been different. It would have been. Yeah. And I just, I just felt vulnerable in that moment. And I don't think they ever did see me because I just interacted with a guy no. on the phone about paying for the damages. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not sure he yeah, ever. And I had to pay full yeah. price for yeah. the whole thing. We paid. We replaced and painted for the tiniest scratch. I mean, it was my fault, obviously. So, but I just wasn't getting any, uh, wasn't getting any white privilege there. That's for sure. <laughs> but if I was there. It probably wouldn't have... Uh, maybe some black privilege. I don't know. <laughs> black welcoming. But there was just that, I think because I was by myself, you know, you just feel vulnerable because it's like, oh, like, here's a white girl, rich white girl. She's probably racist. Who knows? Right. But you just, you just feel it. You just feel it being projected towards you. And I'm sure like, that's just one incident, but I'm sure that, can you just imagine how much, how black people feel? On a regular basis. Right. But the awareness is there. Like I can even physically feel it when we go into certain environments. They call it spaces, you know, white spaces or black spaces. I can feel the tension or I can feel the the eyes, the eyes of questioning and prejudices that just we can't even help because we've just 
we've just been a part of this culture that has fed these things into us for right. so long. Um, how, how do you experience like blackness, like the welcoming of blackness? Like how's, how how's that benefit you? Like the em- embrace of blackness? Well, I definitely obviously felt welcomed by your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily your mom, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that came with time. But also she had her fears, you know, and perhaps I represented like a fear that she had of, you know, that threat. And also, you know, she had desires and hopes for Danfee to do certain things before he got married. And so there was a timeline that she wanted him to uh, fulfill. Um, But I would say when I was in Ghana, for example, like I was very welcomed. Everyone treated me. It's almost like uncomfortable because they treat you like so well. And I know that's a lot of their culture. The hospitality is a part of the Ghanaian culture. So they, they treat all their guests that way. But there was just this element from the people that are haven't really traveled much, especially like if there was any if there's any maids in the house or servants on the property, you get this feeling like they treat you like you're royalty or something, which makes you feel super uncomfortable because I didn't like that feeling. I um, Honestly, I, I understand the hospitality aspect, but there was just that extra element that just made me feel yucky. I didn't like that. So I was, I would try hard to sit in the back in the back kitchen or interact with the girls and try to get to know them. And I don't know. I just didn't, didn't like that hierarchy of race, which I felt. Right. Um, so for me, uh, when I use the phrase being shielded by whiteness, I grew up in Virginia and I, I was, I benefited from a lot of white people being in my life. And I know some people think uh, I've been accused of this. Oh, Dan, you act white or this and that. And I'm like, and like, just let it, I'm just going to let it be known. I've never, ever wanted to be white, but I've always wanted white privilege. So I know exactly what it is. And, and growing up in Virginia, I had, in fact, the first friend I had when I moved to Virginia Beach was a white kid, and he just came and knocked on my door. His name was Eric, <laughs> Eric Nyberg, if you're listening. <laughs> and he just, he was like, it was just like an immediate, you're my friend, and that's it. You have no choice. And we became friends. We're still lifelong friends. Um, and then I had a coach, a white coach who would pick me up, Matt Heisler, for our practice. He believed in me because uh, my dad wouldn't take me to practice because he was studying for his uh, MBA. So he didn't have time. So this white coach would drive out of his way to come pick me up every time. So I benefited from the privilege of showing up to practice with the coach all the time. I was always on time and he, he thought the world of me. And then I moved to Northern Virginia and my neighbors, uh, the close family, it was a bunch of white kids and <laughs> there was three white boys and three white um, sisters. And the, but the sisters didn't live at home. But I became best friends with um, the oldest son, Mark, and we literally did everything together. Uh, we would fight, I mean, aggressively fight. There was one time we fought and I had scissors in my hands because I was going to stab him. That's how, that's how angry we'd get with each other. But then we'd be fine the next day. And one of our neighbors came out. It was like a, one of our black neighbors came out and she was like, you both go home. And she grabbed the scissors out of my hand. But I never felt different from him. Um, and he never made me feel that way. Uh, and then... His younger brother, him and him and I, Michael, we went one time, we, we snuck out to a party and I stole my aunt's car. She didn't know. And uh, we drove out and partied and then we came back. And when we were coming back, the way my neighborhood was set up, there's a lot of hills and my, my house sat at the bottom of like a slanting hill. So if you're coming down the hill, the lights on the car would reflect on the windows in the house. So what I did was, I turned off the lights and so I can coast it down to the house so that nobody heard me coming in. But wouldn't you know, when I pulled up into the house, there was a cop sitting in front of my house for, I don't know why there was, he was just sitting there. And then right when I coasted and stopped, he turned on his lights, started panicking. I was like, "Uh Oh, I don't have a license. I didn't have a driver's license and the car that I'm driving, I'm not supposed to be driving. Um, so it could have been terrible for me, but my friend Mikey was in the car. 
So Mikey, Mikey and I got out and we just pretended that nothing was happening. And the cops like, what, what are you guys doing? We're like, oh, we're just, you know, coming home from hanging out with friends. And he was like, why'd you turn off the lights when you're coming down? I was like, oh, because I was already home. And, you know, I just thought, you know, what's the point of having it on? So I have a hard time believing that if Mikey, my friend, wasn't there with me, that I would have been treated that way, that I would have been given the benefit of the doubt. So then he walked me up to my house and my uncle had been awakened by the lights. So he came to the door and I was like, he was like, so where's your dad? My dad wasn't there at the moment. I was like, oh, actually, that's my dad. (laughs) I pointed to my uncle. I said, that's my dad. And then he's like, okay. So then he let us go. So these are like some of the aspects of like how I felt shielded by whiteness, like because I've benefited from the fact that uh, having a white person around has kept me from getting into trouble if I was by myself or if I was another with another black person. And as far as like the family dynamics between um, Amy and I's family, I've I've often felt like a visitor when we go and visit Amy's family and. I didn't. I don't feel that from all her uh, family members, but I know my nieces know Amy. They actually will talk to Amy on the phone when I'm talking to my family. Uh, my little niece loves Amy. She's always calling. She knows Amy's name, Amy, Amy, Amy. Uh, but I don't necessarily feel that way when I'm with Amy's family. Not because they make me feel different, but as far as like her nephews and they don't know who I am. <laughs> it's like I, I they, they do, but I pop up here and there. I'm not sure they know about me when I'm not around. Uh, there was one video that Amy's sister-in-law was sharing with her where one of the nephews was talking about what gifts he would buy the different aunts uh, and uncles. And I wasn't mentioned. And I felt some form of like grievance because I was like, does he know? I know he knows I exist, but does he even know what I would like? You know, does he know anything about me? Um, and so it was, it just kind of reaffirmed some of the feelings I feel in some white spaces of like, I'm just being tolerated. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, and like I said, I don't feel that from all of Amy's family members, but I, I even, the last time I was there, one of the nephews, he, he's cute. He was looking at me and then he came up close and then he just kind of like, it's kind of like an endearing look. And he was like, can I, can I touch your hair? I'm like, I'm like, yeah, sure. You can touch my hair. And then he touched and he's like, wow, it's so cool. You know, it's different. And I, I felt like in that moment, I, I, I brought him in, you know, and I think there's one part in this book that I, I read called white fragility in which um, D'Angelo talks about how she uses a scenario of like a white kid at the checkout line with her white mom and the white little girl looks over and she's like, mom, look, it's a black guy. And the mom gets uncomfortable and and shush, like hushes the little girl down, and she uses that to show that like we've we've been socialized in such a way not to point out the obvious, like it's almost like black people should be ashamed to be black or that we shouldn't point it out that they are black, when really it's a reality. Black is beautiful, just as white is beautiful, and she go she went on to describe it if it was a case in which the little girl looked at the black man and said, "Wow, what a handsome man," the mom wouldn't have said anything because it's a compliment. But when the little girl brings out or highlights the man's color, it becomes a form of shame. And she goes on to show, um, describe how the socialization kind of keeps us to apart because we're not able to just name what's clearly there. The differences. The differences. And, and I think I've also heard a lot of like the, the, the ideology of colors, uh, like colorblindness. You know, mm. like, oh, I don't see you as black, Danfi. Yeah. I see you we're as... We're all the same. We're all the same. And it's like, well, that's not true because... You live by color frameworks because what would you do if you go to a stoplight? You know, you you live by that. And to say that you don't see my color is to erase my face, to mm-hmm. erase my experiences. Um, and in our marriage, I'm not sure if we do that. I don't think, I think I realize you're white and I think you realize I'm black. <laughs> you know, in, in fact, I think you affirm my blackness. There's times where I'm like, I'll sit out in the sun and I get darker. Oh um, yeah, this is a big one. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm like I gotta get out of the sun because I don't want to get darker. You know, I don't want to be lost. I'm going to be blue black. And then Amy's like, I actually like it when you're darker. I'm like, what? Yeah, I don't know. There's uh, there's that stigma even in the black community of like staying out of the sun so you're not too dark. To me, I don't even, I don't think of that at all. I don't think like, oh, wow, yeah, you should stay like out of the sun because you look better when you're like not as dark. So that's like even something your sister will be say when she comes over. Oh, Fifi, you're getting so dark. <laughs> yeah. You gotta stay out of the time, sun. I, st- I spend a lot of time outside. But, that just goes to show like the 
and just perpetuating that message. The uncomfortableness of like darkness, yeah, you know, a dark color for like, sure. And yeah, we we've had to like deal with some of these these issues um, or even things that arise. And and sometimes I wonder, you know, when we interact with couples who have who are, who are one race, you know, if it's a if it's an all black couple, which I don't really feel it when I'm with all black couples, but when it's like an all white couple we're interacting with, sometimes I wonder how much are they comfortable with their kids seeing Amy and I as a couple and as a love interest? Because like, are they afraid that, wow, my kid might think it's okay to marry somebody else, like that's black. Would they be okay with that? You know, I wonder that oh, about that sometimes, you know? Mm. Yeah. I know that you've uh, mentioned that before. Uh, to be honest, that hasn't actually crossed my mind, but I can see it when you bring up that point that uh, you wonder if there's that hesitation or that right. kind of that buried thought with yeah. certain individuals, even you know, if it's just acquaintances. Like, will they be okay with their kid coming home with somebody as dark as me? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been been quite interesting, to say the least. For a long time, like growing up, I always aligned myself with white culture because I knew the benefits I could get out of it. So I never really valued my own culture. And you were surrounded by it. Yeah, and I was surrounded by it. So I minimized my own culture. Um, but before I get into it, I want to ask you how you felt when we were in Ghana, like me embracing more of my Africanness and loving it. How did it make you feel? Mm. I think that there's been times that I think because perhaps earlier on in our marriage and even in our relationship, um, you didn't have that same passion for maybe your own culture in the way that it's grown over the years. So early on, it was a reality, but it was kind of like downplayed. Whereas like over the years, it's grown. And so I think as it has grown and even going to Ghana, there's that f- perhaps there's that fear. It's like a subconscious fear of like, maybe he's going to outgrow me, like in a sense, like he's going to realize, oh, well, you know, this is who I am and have regrets. Like, well, I wish I would have just, you know, stuck true to my roots and maybe married someone like from my own culture or even skin color so that, you know, they could understand me more or, um, that we would be more aligned or we would have fully black children, you know? So there's this almost like this sense of like feeling, um, like you might be forgotten or, or even just become a regret because of your skin color as somebody comes into their own appreciation of their culture or value for it. Yeah. And I can understand that. And I think there's, that's a legitimate feeling that you have. And there's a there's a book called uh, your inter intercultural marriage and one of the things is a little blip in within the book this uh, the author highlights a story between a, a Japanese American man and uh, his white American wife um, and and this is the following that she writes she says about the Japanese American man when I started dating Ashley um, who was from a wasp background I acted like being Japanese was of no real significance to me. We never talked about our different backgrounds, but when my mother became ill and died last year, I was shocked by my own feelings. I suddenly started to feel Japanese for the first time in my life. I couldn't believe that I felt guilty about bringing Ashley to the funeral because she was white. I made up excuses to explain why I wanted to go to the funeral alone, and Ashley got very upset and asked if I was ashamed to be uh, if I was ashamed of being with her. I think I think for me when I went to Ghana, I loved my country. I just, it was like seeing myself everywhere. And and I think I got awakened to a love that I didn't know was there or I tried to suppress because it wasn't beneficial for me here in this part of the world. Nobody affirmed my Africanness here. In fact, I was ashamed of it. Um, so when I began to embrace it, yeah, it's not that I got em- embarrassed of Amy. I just felt as though maybe just, I sold her short. Yeah, I, I was like, maybe I sold her short because when we came into this marriage, I wasn't as crazy about my africanness right Mm -hmm. and now that we're married i'm like going crazy over it so i felt like i maybe i showed i sold her short and it was hard to connect in some ways um Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if i was ever embarrassed but i just felt as though like could we connect in a deeper way like and how how do i paint how do i create a future for our children in which they can love both 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that that goes into our, our last, you know, point of like the future thinking about children and if God blesses us, if he, if he so blesses us to have children, like what, what do we, what do we anticipate? You know, our fears, you know, I know for a fact, I, like I, there was a fact I named in the beginning of this podcast where in America, if you had, if you were one eighth black, you were considered black, you know? And I know that my kid will, our kid, correction, our kid will have to fight through, are they black or are they white? Because I hear a lot from mixed people I've talked to that you're never, or you're not, you're never white enough for the white folks. Uh, and you're never black enough for the black folks. And I, it grieves me to have to bring a kid into the world who has to fight through these, you know, dynamics. And the fact that the world will label them black, even though they're half white. Till this day, we talk about President Obama as a black man, but Obama is half white. Mm-hmm. We don't want to recognize that. Um, and I think it's it's hard for me, like, how am I going to talk to my kids about this, that it is it is right for them to love both ends of their um their upbringing that their white mom is just as lovely and and image bearing as their black dad you know and and that they have both of that within them well the the benefit is they will be raised seeing both faces from early on so that they don't have to have that conversation when they're 6 years old with their mom at the corner store right right you know but I think it's important that we have these conversations from a young age, but kids, kids do definitely see things differently for sure. I know even my nephew, when he was being asked about what color of skin he was, and he said, mommy, we're peach. (laughs) So he didn't, he didn't say white, obviously white, the concept of white is a, is, is this social construct that we've, that we teach, we teach, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then we live under that white and black. Um, but yeah, there's definitely many colors of skin. Yeah, and I, I, can, I think it makes me happy that the first sight that our baby will see is a black face and a white face. <laughs> <laughs> they will never yeah. be afraid of uh, the world because it's full of different shades and we're like the two extremes of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and we don't know what's going to come. And if you are listening and you have insight on on this topic or like parenting interracial kids or even being married as an interracial couple, we'd love to hear your thoughts uh, in the comment section if you're willing to get provide that. I think um, to end, we what's beautiful about the the marriage of the lamb is that it's an interracial marriage. Every ethnicity will be married to the lamb, and. Mm-hmm. And the bride, every tribe, and every nation. tribe and nation. When Jesus comes, it will be an interracial marriage, and I'm glad that we can somewhat reflect that. <laughs> yes, um, in all of its difficulties and 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 benefits, we're we are going for the long haul by God's grace, and it's worth it because we're making a statement to the world. Yeah, just even by being because, married. Yeah, because a lot of people have told have said, you know, interracial marriage is hard, so let's avoid it. It's mm-hmm. not worth it. Mm-hmm. Marriage is hard. Mar- yeah, business. marriage is hard, period. doesn't matter if it's interracial or not. But yeah, I see where they're coming from. But we don't avoid things because it's hard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're grateful for all that God is doing and pray that he would hold us tight together for the long haul. Thanks for listening. Amen.